Welcome back to Supreme Myths. This is our first, um, I'll call it a program, first podcast of the year. I hope everybody had a very happy new year. I am very excited today to talk to Professor Jim Molesky of Lewis and Clark. Uh, he's a graduate of Middlebury and Georgetown. He was a Fulbright scholar. He clerked for then Judge Alito on the Third Circuit. Um, he's worked for the Obama administration. He worked for Mayor Brown in private practice. But he's here today mostly to talk about the religion clauses, and he simply is one of the most thoughtful scholars, I think, in the country writing about the religion clauses, especially the free exercise clause. Jim, welcome to Supreme Mist. It's wonderful to be with you, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. So let, let's begin at 30,000 feet. Um, and, and uh, you know, this, the, the audience is full of law professors, lawyers, and well-informed lay people. So we'll keep it at that level. What is your overall idea of both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause? How do they fit together? Where are the tensions? And what, if you were, you know, king of the Supreme Court, um, how would you, you know, very broadly, what do they stand for, those clauses? So I guess I'll start off by saying, and I said this to my students yesterday in our first class, we're starting with the religion clauses this semester in, in Kanawha too. I'm still a student of the law and I'm not entirely certain, I'm gonna be <laughs> blunt with you, on where I am at. And, and I look at this year in particular as a year to do some learning because the court is doing so much fundamental rethinking of its, its views that this is a good time, I think, for many of us to, to re-engage. You know, in terms of what are the basic principles behind the religion clauses, I think there's dispute, you know, as looking back at Justice Breyer's sort of last comments on yes. this front and some of the, the principles he describes as basic. Well, some of them all the justices would agree with, but some of them they wouldn't. I think, you know, at a, at a, to go back to the sort of 30,000 foot level you, you started at, um, certainly the clauses are animated by a view that religious persecution was a particularly profound threat to human liberty and liberty and human equality. Mm -hmm. And that taking some measures to prevent religious persecution was important. So both clauses, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause are aimed at doing that much. And although the, the phrase separation of church and state today has become very controversial with you know, the idea that, well, some believe in it and some don't. I think everybody believed in a certain separation of church and state. Right. That is to say that a, a separation of the proper realm for governing, that, you know, churches should not be deciding, you know, when you go to jail and when you don't go to jail. And government shouldn't be decided when you're in good standing with the church and when you're not in good standing with the church. So a certain separation of church and state. I think everybody would agree with is embodied in the, the two religion clauses. Um, and, and, and there is a certain degree of belief that there shouldn't be certain government sponsorship of religion, the establishment clause, and there shouldn't be government, certain government inhib inhibition of religion, the free exercise clause. But then, of course, the rub comes in right. in the, the degree and the type of sponsorship and inhibition. And as well, I'm sure we'll get into the nitty gritty details of, well, is this the, the purpose of sponsoring, the purpose of inhibiting, or does it also cover the effect of advancing religion and the effect of inhibiting religion? And once you start asking those more granular questions, very quickly, we see the justices disagreeing, we see scholars disagreeing. And, um, and I have more views on the free exercise clause because I've spent more time with the free exercise clause than I have the establishment clause. And so, you know, to the extent I'm, I'm still learning and my views are still in formation, I'd say they're more in formation in the establishment clause side than on the free exercise side where I've, I've got more thoughts. Um, yeah, I'll stop there because I've, I've talked for a while and uh, that's fine. turn it back so, over so, to you for some thoughts. Um, well, first of all, congratulations. I, 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 I have you've been teaching law for 11, 12 years or something. 10, 11 years, um, that the notion that you're still figuring out how you feel about these complicated, sometimes conflicting, sometimes not conflicting clauses um, is a wonderfully refreshing thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, I mean, there are a lot of con law issues that I still don't know how I feel about, you know, and I've been doing it 32 years. So I, I think I think that's that's great. I'm so old, Jim, and taught two decades before you did that when I came into law school, and this is before the Smith case, which we'll talk about in a minute. Smith is the case yeah. where Justice Scalia changed everything on the free exercise clause. But, but I came in, I started, I'm sorry, I came in right after the Smith case, excuse me. Um, 
the big debate in academic circles, I don't know if so much in judicial circles, was kind of take both clauses together. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or giving the free exercise thereof. And either, either, and I always thought this was a fake debate, either it was about religious liberty, like it was all about religious liberty, or some other very famous professors said it was about neutrality. Government had to be neutral between religion and non-religion. And there were two different camps, even though the neutrality folks, I think, would say, if you follow us, there'll be more religious liberty. But, but the way to get there is through neutrality. And then the crits came around, I think, and showed nothing is neutral. <laughs> um, do you have any thoughts on those? Among, do you have any even at the time, among those, you know, making a neutrality argument, you had your different types of neutrality yes. arguments that, that yes. were being uh, made. So the word... I think was very malleable even then. Yeah, I, I agree. But overall, are you more in the liberty camp or more in the neutrality camp or neither? Is that a bad question? I am, well, this, this, this sort of, I think, um, bleeds into a conversation that we, we, we informally talked about that we would probably have as well, which is, you know, part of it is how much is my view of the religion clause driven by an, an, an original an originalist approach and how much of it is drawn by a more pluralist approach. And if it if it was an originalist approach, I, I'm inclined to think that justice, even though he didn't say a word about originalism in the Smith case, right. I, I'm inclined to think that his decision in the Smith case um, and maybe his views on the, the religion clauses writ large are, are, are probably consistent with the original meaning of, 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 of the Constitution. By the way, Jim, um, I mean, I'm sorry, I, not only do I agree with that, I do want to make the point real quick, so I interrupt. That's a coincidence, by the way. Oh. It's not, <laughs> just people just, you know, I've done 80, 80 of these podcasts, people aren't going to be surprised when I say the fact that Scalia ended up in an originalist place was, sim I think you did in that, in that case, you're right. It's simply a coincidence. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I had to say that. Sure. But, you know, so much of our law, some of our, our constitutional law is, is informed by so much else. I, I mean, I'm preparing, I'm teaching Con Law 2 this semester, and I'm starting off the religion classes. I'm doing free exercise, and I'm doing uh, establishment, and then I'm going to do uh, free speech, and then I'm going to do Second Amendment. That's the first half of my, wow. my course. And in preparing the material, you know, the free exercise clause, the major decision, Smith, which we mentioned, and then vast, vast swaths of this free speech clause there's not like any attention paid to an originalist inquiry at all. So I'm going to be teaching vast swaths of law, including recent decisions by these justices, you know, the Janus case yeah. in the free speech area. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I'm going to be teaching cases like Bremerton on the Establishment Clause and Bruin on the Second Amendment, and then eventually in the second half of the course, Dobbs in, on, on due process, um, where, you know, the, the, the court's purporting to, to be very concerned about originalism and very concerned about history and tradition. And so it's um, it's going to be very interesting for my students and I think interesting for me to see what areas of law that has and has not yet um, had a huge impact and wondering, well, are we going to see changes to the remaining 75% of what I'm teaching this semester um, or not? And, and just going back to the religion clauses, yeah. it seems to me that nothing the court has done recently on the free exercise clause has anything to do with originalism. You know, the passionate opinions written in the COVID stuff and in the vaccine uh, sort of concurrences and dissents and, and even in Fulton. And, and there's good arguments, I think, on principle that the individualized exemption rule in Fulton is, you know, theoretically a good idea. But there's not an originalist bone in its body. And and, and there's really not an originalist bone in, in any of the free exercise jurisprudence's body right now. But at the same time, the Establishment Clause, the court's telling us it's all about history and tradition. Why is that? Why are we doing that on the Establishment Clause, but not even trying to do it on the Free Exercise Clause and the same justices at the same time? That's a great, Sorry, I've gone on too long. Yeah, that's a, no, you, no, you haven't. And that's a great question. And when we get into the specifics, we'll get back to it. But uh, Yes, <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. As, as I've often mentioned on this pod, I, I, off, I always talk to my guests with a rough roadmap. And then more times than not, we end up diverging and going into very, you know, uh, uh, different territory, and we're going to do so now, just for a couple of minutes. Okay. Um, because yeah. you called the Bruin. You said you said something about Bruin and the justices paying a lot of attention to originalism. Um, Jim, I got to disagree with you on that. I think Bruin is the least originalist case in American history. Number one, there is no less originalist a case in American history than the Bruin case. Let me real quickly throw that at you. Um, the idea that the only thing we would ask 
is what does history and tradition show, and that we would not balance the government's interest in the law, in a gun law in that case, uh, against the strength of the right asserted is something not a single frame, not a single person on the planet Earth, in America anyway, in 1787 would have agreed with. That is not how judges do their job. Back then, as Judd Campbell has said on this podcast, as Saul Cornell has said on this podcast, back then virtually every right was defeasible by a strong enough public interest. And maybe the jury trial right is an exception to that. But other than that, certainly everything in the Bill of Rights other than the right to a jury trial was subject to balancing. So to the extent Bruin says we're not going to balance, and it says that, no more balancing, just it is absolutely, it's not only not originalist, it's anti-originalist. And you can agree or disagree with me if you want. <laughs> well, let me, actually, I'm glad you raised this because I think it's important for us to separate two different things. Yeah. Uh, and I would make this observation not only about Bruin, which you just did, but several others have made this about Dobbs. Yes. There is a difference between saying history, we're going to have a history and tradition test, however you operationalize that history and tradition test, and originalism. And what Bruin and Dobbs are animated by, it seems, is justice is trying to convince us that there's a history and tradition test, and that history and tradition test supports their result. Now, whether that actually lines up with the, the type of originalism that is dominant, like let's say it's original meaning originalism, um, I think strong arguments you've just made that Bruin is inconsistent with that. And I think, you know, um, Larry Solomon and Evan Burnick have both made, and I don't pronounce them, if I'm pronouncing their last names correctly, and I apologize. You did, not, you did. Um, they, they, they both, I think, you know, made arguments that, that Dobbs is, you know, in no way an originalist opinion. You know, the most important originalist inquiry for that topic would be the meaning of the privileges and immunities clause, and the court disposes of that in a, in a, in a footnote. Right. And so right. Um, I, I agree with you. And if I, I, I misspoke by earlier in my own comments, conflating originalism with history and tradition, I think today's court, what I was trying to point out is that there are certain areas, Establishment Clause, Second Amendment, substantive due process, where this court is pivoting away from the doctrines that have so long governed in those areas and saying we're jettisoning those for a history and tradition approach. And then there are other areas of the law, see free speech, see free exercise, where the court doesn't seem to be doing any history and tradition analysis, whether that analysis actually lines up with your theory of originalism. Yeah. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And in fact, Noah Feldman wrote a thing on the Washington Post, maybe, about how Dobbs and um, Bruin are both historic, the words historicism, I guess, that they, they go through history and tradition, but they're not originalist. And there's a big difference between those two things. We'll save that for another conversation, but I just couldn't gotcha. resist. Right. I'm speaking about Bruin and the lack <laughs> well, of originalism like four times this semester. So I wanted to get your views on it. And I appreciate that we kind of agree. All right, let's talk about the free exercise clause. So you wrote a fantastic article in the Wisconsin Law Review whose title I'm Forgetting, can you give me the title of that? Free Exercise Dishonesty. Free Exercise Dishonesty. By the way, I love any Law Review article that begins with like First Amendment dishonesty, Second Amendment, anything like that. I'm all in. Um, but but in that piece, um, in that article, I should say, it's 50 pages, um, you really did a great job of showing how the court, at every turn, when the court changes doctrine, it, <laughs> when it changes doctrine, it completely miscites the cases that came before to achieve whatever goal they want to achieve. I would love it if you could and keep talking like five or 10 minutes on, on the history of that, because, you know, my interest in this partially is not just doctrine. It's also what it says about the Supreme Court. And, and that piece is so powerful. So so that's the, here's the issue for the for the audience. Here's the issue. Does the Constitution at times require exemptions? on the basis of um, religious objection to generally applicable laws not targeted at religion. Everybody agrees, even Siegel, the great atheist, agrees that when the government targets you because of your religion, it, you ha it has to have a compelling interest, maybe the most compelling interest, to do that. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, is there a right to exclude yourself from generally applicable laws not passed to hurt religion because it it, it, it's a burden on your religion. And, and your article does a great job in showing the ups and downs and what happened. So with that introduction, go. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and let me just sort of build on that introduction to give your your listeners sort of a concrete example. Yeah. I'm coming to you from the state of Oregon. Yeah. So the targeted law that Eric referenced would be, let's say Oregon's legislature passed a law, Catholics cannot use wine as a sacrament. That is going to be struck down nine to zero uh, by the Supreme Court as violating the free exercise clause uh, of the First Amendment as made applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment because it targets a religious practice for disfavored treatment. Right. Well, let's say hypothetical two, Oregon decides alcohol has had a devastating effect in our state. We're going to become a dry state. We're going to completely ban the sale, distribution, possession, and use of alcohol. Marijuana is great, by the way. So, marijuana is great, but no alcohol. I like that world. No. I like the world where marijuana is good and alcohol is bad. Go ahead. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they're, they're not targeting religion. It's a health concern they have about the devastating effects alcohol has had in the state of Oregon. But the effect on Catholics is the same. They're not going to be able to, as the first targeted walk, the effect is they're not going to be able to use wine as a sacrament. And if the legislature doesn't, through legislative grace, include an exemption, then the question arises, can they go to court and claim the free exercise clause of the First Amendment gives us a presumptive right to religious exemption? Maybe the government can deny it if they can meet strict scrutiny. But, you know, does it give us a presumptive right yeah. to a religious That's exemption? That's the issue. Great way and, to put it. Yeah. And, and, and at first, the, the court's first two forays in this, a case called Reynolds, in the second half of the 19th century and in a case called Gobitis in the middle of the 20th century? The answer is no, there's no right to religious exemptions. You know, your religious beliefs do not give you immunity from generally applicable laws. One case involving a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who was in a plural marriage and said his religion compelled him to be so and was charged with bigamy, didn't get an exemption from the bigamy law. And then the second case involving children who were Jehovah's Witnesses who didn't engage in the flag salute out of religious conviction. No, they didn't get an exemption. Of course, the court overruled that decision, but on free speech grounds, not on religious right. liberty uh, grounds. We all have a right to refuse to, to pledge allegiance with the flag, but there isn't a special religious immunity from you know, that requirement. Uh, so that was the position of the court. No, no religious exemptions. 1963, Justice Brennan writes Sherbert B. Verner, and there's some lead up to it. It's not completely out of the blue. He wrote a dissent in a, in a case a year earlier, but you know, laying out his views, but he gets a majority in 1963 for the position. Suddenly there is a right to religious exemptions. Woman who was denied us employment uh, compensation benefits because she wasn't available to work on Saturday. And the law said you had to be available to work on Saturday. Um, the court, you know, granted her an exemption from that requirement and said the state could only deny it if it could meet strict scrutiny, have a compelling state interest for denying her the exemption and no alternative means of achieving the state interest other than denying her the exemption. The court gave it weight outside the unemployment benefits context in Wisconsin v. Yoder, a case involving members of the old order of the Amish who had religious convictions that prevented them from sending their kids to school and complying with the compulsory education law after a certain grade in, in school. The court also said they were entitled to a, a constitutionally compelled exemption under the free exercise clause. And so the, that Sherbert Yoder rule that there is a right, a presumptive right to religious exemptions unless the government can meet strict scrutiny, was the governing law between 1963 and 1989. Jim, pause for now, one, pause for one second. So when well, Justice Brennan yeah. did that in Sherbert, um, mm -hmm. I, 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 I think your article suggests not whether the results were right or wrong, but some of how he characterized the past wasn't exactly yeah. Well, well, first of all, first and foremost, he does not mention the operative language from either Reynolds or Gobitis. <laughs> he does mention Reynolds. But he he kind of recharacterizes Reynolds as a compelling state interest case. Mm -hmm. um, but he doesn't, you know, doesn't quote the key language about how, and I'm just, you know, paraphrasing here, if you recognize the right to religious exemption, you make well, every man to be a law unto himself. He doesn't, you know, confront that language. And he doesn't confront, you know, Justice Frankfurter's key language in the Gobitis case. He doesn't even acknowledge the Gobitis case. Um, so, uh, no, he doesn't address um, sort of the, the most important analysis from those cases. Moreover, he draws much more from Justice Jackson's position in Barnett. He turns Barnett, which is a free speech case, into a religious exceptionalism case, even though Justice Jackson was very clear that although he disagreed with Frankfurter on the speech issue, in the flag salute cases, he was alongside Frankfurter in rejecting religious immunity from generally applicable laws in a whole host of cases. So Brennan completely, you know, misattributed to Justice Jackson religious exceptionalism from generally applicable laws. And one of the reasons I mentioned that, I'm sorry for this brief interruption, but um, just for listeners of this podcast or followers of my work, that's 1963. 
that's one of, I think most people think Justice Brennan, you know, he lasted 32 years. Everybody liked him as a person. You know, he was a great collaborator. Um, this case was huge. It changed the law dramatically from zero exemptions to theoretically strict scrutiny. Now, we know it's not going to be strict scrutiny as we go forward. But, right. and he did so in a way that was not, sorry to do this, but not judge-like. Because a real judge wrestles with the counter language and the counter reasoning in the previous cases. Brennan didn't do that. So I, I say that just because the Siegel, the court is not a court thing, does not start in after the Warren court with the conservatives. It's never been a freaking court. And a real judge in 1963 who's about to engineer a revolution in doctrine would do so carefully and by really paying attention to what happened before. Brennan didn't do that. So that's my little sermon. Okay, so we get this regime that's called strict scrutiny, but it's not, right? Well, you know, there's a difference of opinion here. You know, if you, you, Professor Waycock, Waycock would argue that no, it really was a strict scrutiny regime. And, and the cases where uh, people lost on the religious exemption claims in the Sherbert Yoder era are, are ones where they would have lost under other constitutional provisions. So prison cases, military cases, we never apply the same rules necessarily in those cases. But there are a few cases that indicate, no, the court really wasn't applying strict scrutiny, even outside this special context. There's a case involving an Amish carpenter, the Lee case. There's a case involving Bob Jones University, in which the court, you know, arguably in, in, in both of those cases did not apply strict scrutiny with the rigor uh, that it has in other contexts. And, and had it done so, maybe the, the Amish carpenter would have gotten an exemption in Lee that he was denied by the court. Maybe Bob Jones University would have gotten the exemption that they were denied in, in that case. So those, I think, are the two best cases for, for arguing that they didn't really, in all circumstances, but they certainly applied strict scrutiny in Sherbert and Yoder itself. Right. Those two cases, right. you know, they, they, they did apply um, strict scrutiny and lower courts following that in a number of cases did. So there was a, a strict scrutiny regime. Was it as consistent um, as strict scrutiny is applied in other contexts? No. And that's part of what animates, of course, what we're going to talk about, Justice Scalia yeah. and Smith. So, so let's recap. From 1791 until 1963, there was no constitutional right under the federal constitution to exemptions from generally applicable law. In 1963, and the court faced the issue directly in the late 19th century and rejected it. I mean, it was like some people say, well, the court didn't have any gun cases except for the Miller case, which wasn't a real case. Here we had real cases and the court rejected the doctrine. Brennan then engineers this revolution and overturns that doctrine. And that lasts until 1990. And I just want to make the point, there are very few cases in the Supreme Court. That's seven, I'm bad at math too, but that's 27 years, maybe this eight cases, seven cases, something like that. But the lower courts were full of decisions granting exemptions to people uh, all over the place, all over the country. So this was a very big deal. It just wasn't that big a deal in the Supreme Court itself. But in any event, then Justice Scalia comes around in 1990, I believe, in the Smith case. Talk to us about that. So, um, an interesting litigation history here. Yeah. Uh, so everybody argued this case. The state of Oregon. So the, the background of this case is two members of the Native American Church use peyote as a sacrament. So instead of Catholics using wine as a sacrament, here we've got members of the Native American Church ingesting peyote as as a sacrament. And at the time, Oregon had a criminal drug law that uh, classified peyote as a as a, a controlled substance. Controlled substance, and unlike the federal government and a number of states at the time, Oregon did not have a legislative exemption for religious use of uh, peyote. But the case was not a criminal prosecution case. Oregon never prosecuted um, these members of the church, and never prosecuted anybody else who used peyote uh, for for religious reasons. Rather, the case came up because these two members of the church were denied unemployment benefits. So in some ways, it's a case like uh, Sherbert. They're denied unemployment benefits because their violation of criminal law is deemed to be misconduct and misconduct disqualifies them from getting benefits. We should also tell everyone they were actually working in a drug rehabilitation. Yes, case. yes. Rehabilitation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So uh, everybody argues this case, both Oregon and um the, the claimants as if Sherbert and Yoder govern and that Oregon wins the case if they can meet strict scrutiny and uh, the two claimants meet win the case if Oregon can't meet strict scrutiny. Nobody argues, nobody briefs up in the Supreme Court, nobody <laughs> argues up in the Supreme Court 
that the religious exemption doctrine is wrong and the court should overrule it. But of course, under the surface, for years, the, the Reagan administration and the Mies, um, uh, Justice Department had been arguing that large portions of the exemption doctrine were misguided. Um, and uh, in a case versus a case called Bowen versus Roy, uh, Chief Justice Berger got three votes for the, the, the proposition that portions of the court's religious exemption doctrine were, were, were wrong. And that, that's actually the case that started to introduce some of the dishonesty that got five votes in Smith itself. We re, instead of reading Sherbert to stand for the proposition that there's a right to religious exemption from generally applicable law, instead we read Sherbert as standing for this much narrower proposition that there's not generally a right to religious exemption, but in specific cases where the government sets up a mechanism for individualized exemptions, and the religious person doesn't get one, then we take a closer look. And that's what Sherbert was about. But, that, but, it, wasn't, but, but it just wasn't. Sherbert wasn't about that. Oh, no, no, no. That, that's a, now, and this is interesting because that is a, you know, not an accurate description of the Sherbert case. It yeah. wasn't when Berger did it in his plurality opinion in, in, in Roy, and it isn't when Scalia does it in his majority opinion in Smith. What's interesting about it is it's a dishonest reading of precedent. But unlike the hybrid rights theory, right. which is another way the court has to distinguish both Sherbert and the other case I mentioned, Yoder. Yep. And the way the court distinguishes Yoder is different. It distinguishes Yoder as a hybrid rights case. The reason we applied strict scrutiny in, in, in Yoder, Justice Scalia says, is because that case didn't involve just the free exercise clause. It involved the free exercise clause and the unenumerated right of parents to direct the upbringing of their kids. And voila, you, you have two rights and suddenly strict scrutiny applies. But here we've just got free exercise, so no strict scrutiny. Um, that theory, which again is a dishonest characterization of Yoder as well, that theory also nobody takes serious. Like nobody thinks there's a principled argument for the hybrid, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people think there's a principled argument for the hybrid rights theory. By contrast, the way in which the court distinguishes Sherbert, um, there's a principled argument for this individualized exemption rule, and it looks a lot like something we do in free speech land, which is, yeah, the government can you know have some system that people can't be protesting in the street willy-nilly at any time, and it can issue permits and regulate. But we're going to take a close look if, look if they give a single government official sole sure. discretion to issue and not issue, because that raises a danger of discrimination. Sure. And that same idea you could see in this individualized exemption idea that, okay, the government has a broad rule that says you can't do X, but if you have good cause for doing X, a government official can give you permission, and then the religious person says, well, I have good cause, and the government official says, well, you can't do it. Well, maybe we're concerned about discrimination, anti-religious discrimination in that situation. By the way, sorry to get, I don't want to get too off the track here, but that's what Bruin did. That's what the gun case, Bruin case did, thought was the problem too, was the individual discretion to some degree of the licensure. So they, that doctrine carried over to the gun, to gun land, but let's leave that aside for the moment. Right. But unlike, unlike in Fulton, yeah. where the court doesn't make any pronouncements writ large about the free exercise clause and disposes it just based on this specific idea. Right. Bruin sweeps much more broadly in terms of reshaping Fair. Second Amendment jurisprudence, I would say. Fair. But yes, you're right. That same concept is in both. Is in both. So going back to so, Smith. Yeah. yeah, back to Smith. So um, even though no party argues that you should uh, revisit the religious exemption idea, the idea that the free exercise clause uh, gives a presumptive right to religious exemptions, that's exactly what Justice Scalia and a majority of the court do. They say, basically, the free exercise clause does protect you against government targeting your religious exercise because it's religious. Which, by the way, everybody um, agrees with. Everybody agrees, everybody agrees with, that. with that. But we conclude that it's best read not to provide you with a right to religious exemptions from generally applicable law. And no, and it says, this is where it's, it's not, no case we've ever had held that. And it distinguishes Sherbert and it distinguishes. Uh, That's Scalia at his, his, very, like, his very best of exaggeration. Of yeah. <laughs> So, um, so doctrinally, uh, it's a matter of, you know, honestly dealing with precedent, it's no better, it's even worse than, than, than Justice Brennan's opinion in Sherbert was. Right. Um, that doesn't mean, though, that Scalia didn't make some very strong arguments in, in the case. And that doesn't mean that there weren't strong arguments for the position Brennan announced in Sherbert, um, notwithstanding the fact that they both deal thoroughly dishonestly with, with prior <laughs> uh, precedent. And so Scalia's, you know, Scalia, one of Justice Scalia's driving um, concerns is if, if you take this notion of constitutionally compelled exemption seriously, judges are inevitably going to have to decide, well, how important is the religious practice 
and how important is the state interest? And, and we got to weigh it. And that's just a horrible idea to have civil judges weighing in on how important someone's religious practice is and comparing that to how important some particular state interest is and, and coming to conclusions. He says that's horrible to contemplate that we'd be in that business. And he thinks that's the business that religious exemptions put us in. So, um, Jim, um, it, it, it was weighing the, how much of a burden there was, right? There had to be a substantial burden for the doctrine to kick in to begin with. And yeah, and, well, and this is a key, you know, you got this sort of uh, linguistic debate between Scalia and O'Connor and, and Blackman, where, you know, Scalia says we can't possibly have judges decide the centrality of religion. Yeah. And Justice O'Connor's response, oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Well, does that mean that anybody can make any claim and trigger strict scrutiny? No, to go to your point, no, there needs to be a substantial burden or it has to be a constitutionally significant burden. And Scalia's response to that is, well, constitutionally significant burden or substantial burden is just centrality wrapped in different garb. Um, it's still, you know, throwing rice at, a we at the wedding is not, you know, really important to the religion. So it's not a substantial burden to prohibit that. But getting married is really important to the religion. And so prohibiting that would be a right. And so he doesn't think there's any way around if you're going to have an exemption doctrine, you're going to have to at the threshold judge, you know, how bad of an interference this is with religion or how important the religious practice is that's being interfered with. Um, and he doesn't think, you know, that's the role of, of, of the courts. Um, and you don't have to get into that if you just stick with a non-discrimination reading of the free exercise clause. So let's be clear here. The holding of Smith at the time that Smith was decided, mm -hmm. and for some years afterwards, was we don't even do an analysis. The, only, the analysis stops if it's a generally applicable law that wasn't passed with the intent to burden or obstruct somebody's religion. There's no balancing. There's no, you know, you don't need a compelling interest. We don't even get into the free exercise clause if it's a generally applicable law. Um, right. That's, that's 1990. That, that, for the record, I agree. I know you, we disagree about Smith. I think Smith should be the law. I don't think you think it should be, but let's hold that for a moment. All right, so Smith's, right after Smith, maybe the next year or the year afterwards, right, the court decided a targeting case in Florida to, 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 to make sure the world knew that it was still serious about the targeting of religion. That was still going to be a problem. I forget the name of the case out of Florida. Church of the Lukumi Babalu yeah. IA. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the Church of the Lukumi Babalu IA case involves members of the Church of Santeria and animal sacrifice. Right. And uh, the city of Hialeah uh, enacting a, a series of, of ordinances that the court concludes were gerrymandered, basically to continue allowing all sorts of killing of animals in the city of Hialeah, but not allowing um, religious sacrifices by the Church of Santa Maria. And the court basically says, whatever, you know, whatever our disagreements, because Smith was a five to four decision that sharply split the court, whatever our disagreements about the far reaches of the free exercise clause, at a minimum, it, it prevents, you know, targeting of religion for disfavored treatment laws that have the object of, um, of suppressing uh, religion. And, and there so was that, evidence, that and there was evidence there that that was the goal of the that, uh, that was the goal. Yeah, although, yes, there, there, there was, although sort of the strongest evidence that that was the goal is evidence that only got two justices. So Justice Stevens and Justice Kennedy were the only justices who were willing to look to the legislative history, right. where it was obvious from the legislative history, yeah. the religious, you know, animus uh, towards the, the members of the Church of Santa Maria. So one more thing about Smith before we move on from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when I argue with people, I think Smith was absolutely right, and people defend Smith. One of the, this is not a good argument, but it's that hominid argument, but I want to Make sure everybody knows it. I think, I think, and, and somebody can correct me if they hear this and I'm wrong. There are only two cases, I think, con law cases, where Stevens and Scalia agreed on a major, major, major issue that split the rest of the court. The Hamdi case is a case, a terrorism case. It's a case where, Steven, where Stevens joined Scalia's opinion in, in, a, in a concurring, very important concurring opinion. The Stevens was our most, I want to say, anti-religion judge, justice. I don't know how to, what the right word for that is, but he was hostile to, he, he, he wanted a very tall establishment clause and a very low free exercise clause because he wanted total separation of church and state. 
But the fact that he and Scalia both agreed on the result in that case, just like as in Hamdi too, when they carries weight with me, because these are two human beings who disagreed on almost everything <laughs> that we talk about. Almost any con law issue they disagreed about. They agree on Smith. I, am I making too much of that? I, I, you know, I think it's an interesting observation. I, I you know, and, and Squia explicitly draws on Stevens' prior opinions yeah. from the Lee case that yeah. we mentioned earlier. You know, Stevens was never convinced that the court was actually doing of the work it said it was doing in the Sherbert and Yoder era. And he sort of explained what, what he thought the law really, what, what was really going on. And, and Scalia drew upon that in his, in his Smith, um, his Smith opinion. So yeah, when you, when you have the two of them uh, agreeing, it's probably a sign there's some merit to the argument. And again, although as you've alluded to several times now, um, I think you and I do not uh, agree fully on whether Smith should be the governing law. I think there's a lot of merits to much of the arguments Justice Scalia makes in the case, notwithstanding the dishonest treatment of precedent, notwithstanding the fact that he does no originalist analysis, which seems odd. Um, well, actually, but, it's not. It's actually, it's consistent with, he almost never did originalist analysis, it turns out. No, it's true. He's just saying that to say, yeah. It's true. <laughs> Thank you. You did a good job. I want to I repeat Larry Rosenthal's article on the Fourth Amendment where Scalia voted originalist 18% of the time. That's about the right number, somewhere between 15 and 20%. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we, okay, so we're, we're at, we have like 15, 20 minutes left, and I do, at the end of this, want to hear your proposal <laughs> in the, from the Wisconsin piece. But before we can yeah. get to that, now you've got to tell everybody what happened to Smith. And I, I view this as such a typical <sighs> deterioration of doctrine in an unpleasant hiding kind of way that it, it really um, supports a lot of my arguments separate from the religion clauses about how the Supreme Court operates. So what happens to Smith over the next 30 years? So, so I think one has to, one, one can't think about this without thinking about the larger cultural and social shift on the issue of religious exemptions. It happens between 1990 when Smith is decided and today. So when Smith is decided in 1990, um, it's three liberals and Justice O'Connor who are objecting to, right. to the Smith decision. So leading up to Smith, it's the conservatives, the Reagan administration, Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, well, before him, Chief Justice Berger, then, ju then Justice, but then uh, subsequently Chief Justice Rehnquist, and, and eventually Scalia for the majority in Smith, who are arguing against constitutionally compelled exemptions. And it's liberals, you know, following up on Brennan's creation of the doctrine back in 1963 <laughs> that are arguing for it. Right. Uh, in the political realm, there's actually sort of cross-ideological, not universal, but broad cross-ideological, cross-partisan uh, conclusion that there is a constitutional right to religious exemptions. The court got it wrong in Smith, and we need to correct that wrong. So the, the Congress passes almost unanimously the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, which is intended to restore the Sherbert-Yoder uh, era doctrine. The court strikes that down as applied to the states in 1997. Congress, it still applies to the federal government, which is why we have cases like Hobby Lobby. Um, in the late 90s, 1998, 99, um, the court, I mean, sorry, Congress gives it another shot, uh, going to try to use different powers to basically undo Sherbert and Yoder at the, at the state level. And it starts off having, again, near universal support in Congress, but then it changes. Between 98 and 99, suddenly, people start realizing, oh, this is going to start to impact civil rights laws um, and non-discrimination issues, and particularly issues of gay rights. Yeah. And uh, the coalition shatters once, you know, the, the, that becomes one of the focal points. Fast forward, in addition to gay rights uh, and whether people have a right to religious exemption from non-discrimination laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, uh, after the Affordable Care Act is passed during the Obama administration, a uh, regulation enforcing that requires uh, companies who provide health insurance to include uh, cost-free contraceptive coverage, and there are requests for exemption from that. And so once the debate about religious exemptions becomes about these culture war issues, gay rights, contraception, abortion, um, the, the political lineup changes. A lot of liberals are suddenly finding themselves finding a lot to admire in Justice Scalia's opinion in Smith, right. and a lot of conservatives are finding a lot to admire in Justice Brennan's opinion in Sherbert. Um, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? By the way, one thing about 
Smith that some people may not know. Although O'Connor, she disagreed with the mode of analysis, but she would have ruled against the plaintiffs in that case. Because yeah, so O'Connor concurs in the judgment. She yeah. would have ruled against the Native Americans, but she would have said that's because Oregon can meet the strict scrutiny. Test. Exactly. Okay. So I just want to be clear. Okay. Her um, opinion is 90% or 75% of her opinion is dissenting from the legal conclusions yeah. of the majority. Am I right to say um, that the um, unraveling of Smith started with the Roberts Court, basically? Uh, yes. So, it, well, it, it no, it started well before the Roberts courts in the lower courts. OK, so, um, you know, immediately after immediately after Smith is decided um, in, the, in the scholarship, most closely identified with uh, Professor Doug Laycock, an argument is made that uh, these exceptions that are in Smith, because Smith isn't willing to overturn Sherbert, it's not willing to overturn Yoder. These exceptions, and particularly the one concerning Sherbert, is broader than it might first seem. It's not just about systems of individualized exemptions. It's about this broader concept that whenever government includes an exemption to a law, even if it's a categorical exemption in the law, whenever it includes an exemption in the law that is comparable to the exemption sought by a religious adherent, the religious adherent has a presumptive right to the same exemption. Jim, that's, and this that, that's, is the pause, most- pause, pause, right, pause there for a moment because it's an yeah, incredibly yeah. important point you're making. The people like Doug Laycock, who I have all the respect in the world for, but disagree with on this issue tremendously. Um, but, but the idea became, if there's, if there's any exemptions, then there has to be religious exemptions. Give an exam- Can you give an example of how dumb that is? Well, well, I think it's really dumb. <laughs> Uh, and rather than trying to give an example that it's dumb, I'll just just give you the, the first example that came up in the lower courts. Okay. Not, well, not the first, but the most prominent example that comes up in the lower courts and um, is decided in the 1990s, uh, is decided by then judge, now Justice Alito, uh, the Fraternal Order of Police case. And we, and, should say you, and we should say, remind people you cooked for Alito. Go ahead. I did. I did. Um, so uh, this case involves a rule that a police department, the Newark Police Department had prohibiting uniformed officers from wearing beards. Um, but there was an exception, a medical exemption. Uh, and some uh, Muslim police officers who wore beards for religious reasons claimed that they had a right to a religious exemption. Under Smith, it would seem they would lose. But what Justice Alito found in that case is the fact that the department had included the medical exemption triggered a right to the religious exemption. And actually, the second big case, a little several years later, I think it was 2005, is also by Justice Alito, a case called Black Hawk involving uh, a Native American who kept a wild bear in his yard uh, for religious purposes. And again, in that case, because um, and he was arguing, I shouldn't have to pay these certain fees that are charged for keeping wild animals. And um, there was an exemption in the law that said zoos and circuses didn't have to provide these fees. And Justice Alito said, well, there's an exemption for zoos and circuses. So the, the individual who's keeping the wild bear in his backyard gets a religious exemption. So if it's called the most favored nation theory of religious exemptions, because if there's any secular reason for doing something that gets an exemption from the prohibition, then the religious exemption also well, uh, has and, to be and granted the, unless the government can meet strict scrutiny. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to know that the, the, the rule of law that I called dumb was originally Sought, uh, authored by Justice Alito, because that then makes sense to me. Sorry, just kidding. Not really. Um, but what I want to say is that eventually led, the reason I called it a dumb rule, is in the COVID cases, where um, the idea, forgetting how any individual case should come out, the notion that people who can't get vaccinated for medical reasons, and there are, my sister actually is somebody who could not get the COVID vaccine for, for medical reasons. The idea that because we allow those people not to get the vaccine, we have to also allow people with religious objections, it doesn't, doesn't answer the overall question. But the analogy is, I'm sorry, it's dumb. The fact that we have a medical exemption should not automatically mean we have a religious exemption. That just, that, 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 it's, it's apples and oranges to me. Well, I, I think a couple of thoughts. Yeah. One, the, you know, the advocates of the theory, and let's go back to, to Professor Laycock, sort of the, the leading advocate of the theory. Yeah. In, in the academy, you know, he, he thinks the vaccine cases are easy cases where the government should win. So he agrees with you on the, the end result. He would, it's sort of like the disagreement 
between O'Connor and, and, and Scalia and Smith. They both got to the same result. She got there after applying strict scrutiny. He said no scrutiny applies. Similarly here, you would say no scrutiny, you know, no heightened scrutiny applies. The fact that they give a medical exemption to the vaccine requirement does not trigger strict scrutiny to the denial of a religious exemption. Doug would say, well, it, it, it might trigger uh, strict scrutiny, but the government could easily meet strict fair scrutiny enough. That's fair. In, in that particular case. So he would come to the same conclusion where I think your your biggest disagreement is with Justice Gorsuch, who wouldn't come to that conclusion. And Justice Gorsuch says, in that circumstance, we have to have a random lottery and you know, we'll give one to the to the first medical exemption claimant and one to the first <laughs> med- religious exemption claimant and two to, you know, and, and you know, so he okay. he would have vindicated the claim. So, so bring us up to speed on this with the city of Fulton case, uh, uh, the Fulton case, I mean, and, and, and then and, and, or, or any of the recent cases you want to talk about, and then tell us your proposals. I found your proposal interesting in, in your Wisconsin piece. So, well, I think actually more important for the purpose of what we've been talking about, the most favored nation theory sort of writ large, the more important case is not the Fulton case, it's the Tandon case. Yeah. So for folks who are unfamiliar, so during COVID, a series of cases arose where different jurisdictions put limitations, various limitations to slow the spread of COVID, often on gatherings. And... Um, and they were challenged and the challengers would say, hey, you're putting these limits on, but they're not applying to grocery stores or they're not applying to office buildings they're not applying to this. They're not applying to that. So you can't apply it to us when we want to gather for religious reasons. And uh, most of those claims lost in the lower courts. They worked their way up to the Supreme Court. And uh, in the summer of 2020, the first cases reached the Supreme Court on the shadow docket, the emergency docket. And five to four, the court rejects these religious exemption claims. Chief Justice Roberts voting with uh, the liberals to reject these claims. Uh, Then in the fall of 2020, Justice Barrett replaces Justice Ginsburg, and suddenly the cases start turning out the other way. There's not a a lot of explanation of why until we get to the Tandon case, which is decided in the spring of 2021. And in the Tandon case, this involves a California law that put a limitation on gatherings in homes, only members of three households could gather in homes, um, the the religious claimants who wanted to have Bible studies in in the home said, this is, this triggers the most favored nation theory of religious exemptions because you're giving, you know, giving, you're allowing people to go to the stores uh, and allowing more than three households at the stores, but you're not allowing it in our homes. California's response is, well, we're not allowing anybody to do it at homes, whether secular or religious. This is not targeted at religion. It's we think homes. It's hard to govern in homes. It's home versus um, it's, ho- it's homes versus not homes. It's not religion versus right. non-religion. Exactly. Exactly. Goes up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court five to four rules for the religious claimant in the first case in which a majority of the court ever adopts the most favored nation theory, saying explicitly that if any exemption is granted to a role, and they emphasize the word any, mm-hmm. any, exem- any comparable exemption is granted, then the denial of a religious exemption is subject to strict scrutiny. I just want to say, Jim, as I've said a million times, you, you, we know why it changed. We changed because we know, we know the cause and effect of this. It's not a mystery. It's because Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg. Um, I just want to, I'm, you don't have to answer this question. I'm just going to throw out Posner's adage. On my podcast, I have to mention Dick Posner once every podcast. So this is my time. If changing judges changes law, do we even know what law is? Because in fact, the law changed only because, only because Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg. If um, if that if Justice Ginsburg had held on if, you know, a little while longer and Biden had a replacement, we would not be in this position. In any event, most favored nation status becomes the law, right? With an asterisk. Okay. And the reason there's an asterisk, it's a shadow docket case. Right. It wasn't argued. Right. wasn't fully briefed. Um, and, and you know, the, the court takes this very patronizing attitude towards the lower courts. We have been crystal clear with you right. that this is what you're supposed to do. And, and, and this is what you're supposed to do. And it's the first time they've said this is what you're supposed to do. Like, you know, we were supposed to discern this from orders that had no opinions that were previously issued. So it, in any event, you know, what the precedential impact of that is unclear. And that brings us to the case you did mention, the Fulton case. So Fulton, this is a case involving the city of Philadelphia who stops doing work with Catholic Social Services after it's brought to its attention. The Catholic Social Services is not certifying same-sex couples as foster parents. Um, 
and it's more complicated, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for our purposes right now. Um, everybody before COVID, the court granted cert in Fulton right before COVID hit. Everybody thought Fulton was going to be the case yep. where the court was either going to decide whether to overrule Smith and go back to Sherbert and Yoder or whether it was going to adopt the most favored nation theory, you know, make one of these big changes. Well, Fulton turns out to end up being kind of a, a whimper because in Tandon, the court applies the most favored nation theory. You get to Fulton, they dispose of the case based on that individualized exemption rule that we talked about earlier. And they say, oh, this is a case where Philadelphia has given sole discretion to an official to make exemptions to its anti-discrimination law. So theoretically, a, a, an official in their discretion could allow some agency they're contracting with to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And if you give some official the sole discretion to allow it, you can't deny the religious claim. I, I don't think those were the actual facts of that case, but let's not argue about that <laughs> here. So what are facts? Yeah, Who cares? Yeah. They totally mischaracterized the facts, but I don't want to get into that right now. Okay. So after after Fulton, we don't know if they're going to reverse Smith or not, if they're going to adopt most favored nation status. We're kind of still up in the air. The most interesting, the most interesting thing to me, and others might disagree, but the most interesting thing to me in Fulton is Justice Barrett's concurring opinion. Yeah. So Justice Barrett, you know, Justice Alito writes a dissent, or not a dissent, a I'm sorry, a concurrence, yeah. which is a dissent on the law. Yeah. Um, he, he, with uh, Justices Gorsuch and Thomas, say we should overrule Smith. The time has come to overrule Smith. I've done an originalist analysis. Smith is wrong. We should overrule it. Justice Barrett writes separately and says, I might be open to the idea that Smith is problematic and, and there are flaws in Smith, but boy, I'm not sold on returning full-blown to a strict scrutiny regime. And she says, you know, we haven't done that necessarily in the other areas of the First Amendment. Um, we've taken a more nuanced approach. I presume she's thinking of intermediate scrutiny cases in the free speech context, O'Brien type of, yep. of situations. And so... You know, this is the first time a justice has sort of articulated a view somewhere between the Sherbert position and the Smith position. It's sort of been all along, all or nothing. Either there's this right to exemptions backed by strict scrutiny or there's no right to religious exemptions. And no justice has sort of explored the in-between territory. And Barrett, joined in her opinion by Kavanaugh and, and then Justice Breyer, is the first justice who indicates I'm interested in exploring the in-between. Of course, she saves it for another day. So to back to your point, we have no idea where things will go going forward. In between is a reversal of Smith, though. If they adopt an in-between standard, that does reverse Smith. I mean, Smith says... Yes. It, 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 yeah. yeah, no, no, I, I, absolutely. But there's there's reversals of Smith and there are reversals of Smith. Sure. There's, you know, reversals of Smith and restoring the strict scrutiny regime, right. which is what Justice Alito is arguing for. Then there's reversing Smith and instituting what you've alluded to I've argued for, which... Would, would, I think, lead in cases to very different results Agreed. and not necessarily raise the problems that Justice Scalia talks about in, in Smith. We're going to get to your proposal in a second. Um, we're going to go over time because if you, as long as you're willing to do it, because I'm so... Well, folks can read the, they don't need to hear me describe the proposal. They can go read the article. Well, no, I, want, no, I want to get to it. But, but, but before we get right there, I want to ask you a question about Hobby Lobby. Okay. Um, yes. That, that yes. is that's a, little bit, a little bit sideways to this conversation, but it's important to me. It's my podcast. I get to ask you a question. Um, so I believe what Justice Alito, who obviously to me is the arch-villain in all of this, um, did in Hobby Lobby is something that had never been done before. And I think most scholars agree with this, but I could be wrong, and you're more up to speed on this issue than I am. What he said was, we, we're not going to ask whether there's a substantial burden on religious practices as riffer. Now, we're not talking about the... Not, I should make it clear. We're now talking about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed by Congress. We're not talking about the Free Exercise Clause, but the court's going to view both the same way. So it's, it's going to be kind of like a Title VI and an Equal Protection Clause thing in, in, in the affirmative action context. The court is the court's going well, to... Well, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated because what the court is doing is they're, 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 they're treating RIFRA, at least ostensibly, like free exercise doctrine pre-Smith, yes. not current free exercise yes. doctrine, old free exercise doctrine. Yes. And then it gets more complicated because the court says several times in Hobby Lobby, well, maybe RIFRA goes beyond that pre-Smith jurisprudence. But here's the point I want to anyway, make. There's no chance when RIFRA was passed or during the Sherbert era that people thought the following. If the penalty is severe enough for not complying with whatever law you're not complying with, that's automatically a substantial burden, which is what Alito said in Hobby Lobby, because a lot of people made the point 
that it was hard for Hobby Lobby, first of all, as a company, to engage in religious, religious exercise. I don't want to go there right now. It's controversial. I don't want to go there. Is it a substantial burden? Well, they did business with China, who had forced abortions, you know, for, for, for many, you know. So the, the answer to all of that stuff that this was not a substantial burden was like one or two paragraphs. And, and Ginsburg did say in dissent what I'm saying to you now. What it, the shift Alito made was the penalty is the burden. That's what he says in Hobby Lobby. And I and, and, and that never made sense to me. The, the issue is, is my religious practice substantially burned by what the government is making me do, not what the government is going to punish me for if I don't do it? Because if, because if the fine in Hobby Lobby was one penny, as opposed it was, it was millions of dollars, but had it been one penny, then I don't think that would have been a substantial burden under Alito's analysis if he were an honest person, which he's not, so it wouldn't have come out that way. But that's what he says. He never, he says the burden here is the penalty. And I don't think that happened before. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. So uh, I think there's, one, I'd have to go back and reread the substantial burden analysis in the, in, in the case. But I think there's a, there's a good portion going on under the surface, which ties back to the Smith discussion. Okay. Which is, if the court tells us in Smith, if Scalia for a majority in Smith tells us we can't do a substantial burden analysis the way we have traditionally thought about a substantial burden analysis, but we've got this, but we get to Hobby Lobby, we've got the statute that says substantial burden. Well, the, the, the court's going to have to come up with some way to operationalize that that is not what Justice Scalia indicated was not within the judicial can back in, in, in Smith. And I think you know, part that might be part of what is going. It's not explained at all in Hobby Lobby, right. but that might be part of what's going on in Hobby Lobby. I mean, part of the problem with Riffra is you said nobody thought this is what they were doing. Nobody knew what the hell they were doing. <laughs> nobody, you know, the people who passed Riffra hadn't a, a, the faintest clue what the court's, you know, Fair. free exercise doctrine was. The nuances of strict scrutiny, Fair. and a big part of the problem is they wrote into statute this judicial doctrine that had taken on this sort of maybe specialized meaning in the free exercise context that was different than its meaning in other contexts. But if you just look at the plain language of the operative provisions of RIFRA, there's an argument for the, the, the Hobby Lobby conclusion. Um, you know, now we all knowing the background leading up to RIFRA and we know, being intimately familiar with what it was restoring, no, there's a whole heck of a lot of nuances. And if you go dive into the testimony from many, including you know, Professor Waycock, yep. you might say, oh, OK, well, it, it says X, but, it, you know, that's informed by a lot of judicial decision making and a lot of understandings. But to assume that all the members of Congress had the faintest of clues about any of that and, what the, and that they were thinking about, well, Justice Scalia warned us that portions of the substantial burden and analysis is problematic. So, you know, you can only do this as part of the substantial burden. Nobody was thinking about any of that or figuring out any of that. Um, now, maybe an honest court would have said, well, first, we have to figure out whether this is even constitutional. Right. In Smith, we told you the judges can't do this work. Right. Now we've got this statute that tells us we have to do this work. Well, maybe we can't do this. Maybe maybe the substantial burden provision is is unconstitutional. We have to decide, can we operationalize the rest of the statute without the substantial burden? threshold. Um, and maybe we can, maybe we can't. Is it severable? The court doesn't do any of that analysis, obviously. I wish we had more time because I would then go into my argument that um, conscience objections are not exercise objections, but we'll leave that for a different day. Um, <laughs> Jim, so we'll, let's end with, this has been awesome. Thanks. And that, that, but I want I do want to get yeah. your, your analysis out there. And, and so here's my hypo to you. Um, and out of real life, obviously. Um, a, a florist or a wedding photographer or someone like that doesn't want to do a same-sex wedding. Um, you're on the Supreme Court, so you can do whatever you want with Smith. You can do whatever you want with the past, as we've seen Brennan Scalia and you know and the court do with the past. We don't really care about it. Um, you can do whatever you want. How do you analyze a state non-discrimination law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and a wedding artist and, and leave aside and, and there's, there's serious free speech issues here that's a different podcast right. for a different day and i'm very sympathetic yeah. to the free speech issues but on the religion issues how do you analyze it? if you could write you're writing sure. the opinion and this is going to be constitutional law for the future so i we, and we to, to answer that question i, I kind of have to go take a, a, a step back okay. which is 
So, you know, we mentioned that the court has swung between the extremes. There's no right to religious exemptions or there's very strong right backed by strict scrutiny. My views, and this is consistent with something uh, Mike Dorff wrote years and years ago in an incidental burdens piece he published in the Harvard Law Review. My general view is that incidental burdens matter under the Constitution, but they are different than targeted burdens. And I think that general approach makes sense in lots of areas, and I'm inclined to think it makes sense in interpreting the free exercise clause. So I would not subject uh, incidental burdens on religion from flowing from generally applicable laws to the same level of scrutiny as targeted burdens. Uh, so I would not return to Sherbert and, and Yoder. I would not adopt a RIFRA right. uh, regime. And, and, and to me, once I come to that, but I would apply some heightened level of scrutiny. Uh, to the denial of an exemption to an incidental burden. Um, but to me, the case you've raised is an easy one because even in the strict scrutiny regime, even when the court was operationalizing a strict um, scrutiny regime, cases that arose in the commercial realm involving discrimination, those exemption claims were rejected and the government was viewed as having uh, a compelling state interest in enforcing equality norms in the commercial uh, marketplace. So, so to me, under my regime, which would not be imposing strict scrutiny, you know, those are relatively, relatively easy. Because you wouldn't, even, you wouldn't even need a compelling them. interest, a strong interest would do. And there's obviously a strong yeah. interest in, in that. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I, I don't even, you know, I think back to the Scalia point, you get into sort of um, some some problems with important and strong yes. and, and, and those kinds of yes. words. You know, to me, um that the most important thing, if you're going to have any level of scrutiny of incidental burdens, it's really it's the shifting of the burden to government to government to justify what it's doing. That that shifting of the burden, which is something we do in you know Title Seven reasonable accommodation cases, the, the, the undue burden standard is interpreted or undue hardship standard is interpreted by the court. It's not a rigorous standard, right? But just by putting the burden on employers to justify their denial of an accommodation provides some level of protection. And, and a lot of people get accommodations in the workplace that they wouldn't if it wasn't for Title VII, even though it's a, a relatively weak standard, just by virtue of requiring employers to justify. And I think if we did something similar with government, when it's it's laws incidentally burden religion, maybe out of just you know benign neglect, um, there would be a positive effect of taking a closer look, but not a strict scrutiny regime, which I agree with Scalia. If you took it seriously, um, wouldn't be administrable. So I, um, I, it, I love that, Jim. I think that's a very... I think that's a very common sense, grounded approach, which is why the court will never adopt it, um, even, even <laughs> though it is wise and common sense. Uh, you know, I'm a believer in no constitutionally required exemptions, but I, I would yeah. I would yeah. give my left arm for the court to adopt your standard <laughs> um, <laughs> when it replaces Smith, which it will do eventually. Um, but I'm guessing that it will not. Their their exemption regime will be much broader than the one you just articulated. Well, and 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 and, and you know the model I'm drawing upon the Title Seven model they're actually going to probably change. Yep. They're going to probably revisit yep. the the watered down undue hardship standard and 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 give it more teeth. And right. so the, if anything, they're going to be going the other direction in that area. Right. I think. And my very very last question, and we didn't get a yes, chance to yes, talk. Yes. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but you've done a lot of work, great work on free speech. Um, I find the, the case this term. This is the last question, I promise. Creative 303 case, really difficult. I mean, I, I, think, I think most people find it really difficult because designing a website to me is like art. I mean, it's like writing a poem or writing a song or performing a song. I can't imagine a world where we make Billy Joel play a wedding he doesn't want to play <laughs> or whatever. Um, I can't imagine a photographer being told, you have to go and take pictures and organize them in a book and be all good about it against his will. The free speech part of that is strong to me. On the other hand, the compelling interest in fighting discrimination against LGBTQ folks is very, very strong too. So I'm torn. What's your answer to that? So and you may have to cut this off because we're, we're, we're short on time, but let's discuss it. Um, so I think part of the challenge uh, is that the court's precedent in this area is under theorized and under explained. Yeah. So, you know, you've got the, the state of Colorado, which is the one enforcing or who wants to hold open the possibility of enforcing. They haven't actually yet enforced their non-discrimination law against the website designer. 
they're relying on a case, uh, Rumsfeld versus Fair. Uh, and the, the claimants in this case, the free speech claimants, are, are relying on um, the St. Patrick's Day parade case, the Hurley case. And, you know, the court has never really done a great job of explaining <laughs> the divergent results in, 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 in those two cases. So I think colorable arguments can be made Me too. For, for, both, for both sides. Now, to your point, um, I, I think part of the what I see the problem in analysis is of course, this is, you know, artistic and creative. And of course, singers are artistic and creative and photographers are artistic and creative. But I, I, I don't know that that answers the First Amendment question, because um, if you set up a, a portrait studio on Main Street where you, you know, uh, make family portraits for, you know, any passerby in general, you open your doors to the public, but then you don't allow the the interracial family to get uh, a portrait. Can the non-discrimination law not be applied um, to you? And I'm not sure that I'm not sure that is the same as the Billy Joel example or the commission, you know, the, the famous photographer who only takes photos of people she wants to take photos of in circumstances she wants right. to. It's different when it's someone who opens their doors to take a portrait of virtually anyone, but then excludes someone. And and the reason is it's it's not that the there's less artistic quality in doing it. It's about the message. You know, the First Amendment, I don't think, is about protecting art for the sake of art or creativity for the sake of creativity. It's about it's about protecting expression. And we don't think of the Main Street portrait artist as expressing their own message when they're making a you know a portrait of the Oleski family. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not sure. And, I'm not uh, sure about that. I think it's a hard question. You just. I'm not sure you're. Well, you know, uh, maybe so. Um, but I, but I think that's the that's the the, the question. Yeah. Is are they actually engaged in their own expression or their customers' expression? Fair. Fair. Um, and and but but the problem is even if one were to agree with me that that's the the, the key question, um, is well then how do we go about deciding when a particular you know the court concluded in the in the Fair versus Rumsfeld case. You know, that the, the, the law school um, would not be sending its own message when it was sending emails and putting things on bulletin boards for the military recruiters. It was sending the military's message. Uh, by contrast, the parade organizers would be perceived as sending their own message right. if there was a gay rights banner in the St. Patrick's Day right. parade. Oh, OK. Both of those intuitively make, make some sense to us. We might agree with those conclusions. But the court doesn't really give us a framework to then decide harder cases that fall between those. And a lot of people may think the 303 Creative, the website designer case, falls in between those two. So what is the mechanism for deciding the case? Yeah, that's I and I, I don't know the answer, Jim. I got to be honest. This is one of those um, in my fantasy world of deferential judicial review. I, I have an answer. But in the real right, world right. of non-deferential judicial review, it's tough. We have set the record for the longest Supreme Miss podcast out of like 80. Congrats. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's good. No, that, that's, an, that's a compliment. I filibustered. That's a compliment, not a um, – I, and I, I, there's still more things I want to ask you about, but we've got to cut it, we've got to cut it off there. Thank you so much for being on. I know that this was very, very helpful to a lot – will be helpful to a lot of people who are struggling with these issues because you're really great at explaining things. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been fantastic to join you for this, Eric, and uh, look forward to doing it down the road again. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim.